Lord, I do thank you for this time. And as Rudy prayed for Bill and Dustin and the Uganda team, I do pray that you'd be with them. I pray that they would work in unity with each other uh, to bring the gospel to those who are lost and to bring discipleship to those Christians who maybe have not been walking as strongly as they could. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare the hearts of those they are ministering to and open them to whatever it is you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what am I going to start with? I'm going to start with a joke. <laughs> okay. This one's from Christian. How many wizards does it take to change a light bulb? Depends on what you want to change it into. And I'm not really sure who this one is from. They wrote it out, so I have to read it. Oh, that one's Christian too, okay. Okay, one time a boy goes to his father and asks, where do babies come from? The dad said, Adam and Eve had boys, and then they had babies and so on. Then the boy went to his mother and asked the same thing, and she said, we evolved from apes. He goes back to his dad and said, you lied, we came from apes. That's what mom said. The dad said, no, that's your mom's side. Okay, uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we left off on verse 18 last night, so we're going to begin in verse 19. But before that, I'm going to give you some review of what we've gone through. Uh, First of all, 2 Timothy is the last book written by the Apostle Paul. It is written when he's in prison under Nero for the second time. And so it is his final... um, I think some commentators call it his magnum opus. It's his final uh, encouragement to Timothy. And he has all these nice pictures in there and metaphors to give Timothy encouragement and strength through the commands that he's giving him. So he begins by telling Timothy to remember the strong foundation that he has in the faith. And he received that foundation from his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he encourages him that he should rekindle that gift of God that was given to him and that he shouldn't be afraid to exercise it because Timothy was a timid man. And I mentioned before the last two times, there's 25 different affirmations or command type phrases that Paul gives Timothy because Timothy is that timid person. You know, if he can get out of it, it sounds like he probably would. So Paul says, no, 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 you need to do these things. But he says, when you do them, you don't have to be fearful because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, after this, he reminds Timothy that it was God that has given him this holy calling that he has. Now, in this case, Timothy is a pastor at the church in Ephesus. It's not the only thing he did, but I believe this is where he was at this time. Now, after that, Paul sets out his own life as an example for Timothy to follow. He encourages him to persevere and accept the persecution and the suffering that's going to come his way as a disciple of Christ. Sorry, I just lost where I was. (laughs) And he wants him to hold fast to the sound teaching that Paul had given him. Now, chapter 1 ends with a comparison of two types of people. Now, the first type is those who have turned away from the faith. And Paul mentions Phygelus and Hermogenes as people who have abandoned the faith. And the other person 
was Onesiphorus, someone who, despite the persecution that was going on, still sought Paul in Jerusalem to minister him however that was needed. Now, the comparison is that of unfaithful versus faithful. And if you remember the parable of the sowers that Pastor Bill just went through, Phygelus and Hermogenes are evidently these seeds that were sown among the rocky soil because it's during this persecution that they have turned away and abandoned Paul. And it's many other Christians, supposedly, who have abandoned Paul Why he's in Asia when he's in prison. So when he was arrested, he says that everybody left. And if you look at the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, it says when he first gave his defense, he said, no one stood with me. Now, can you imagine... Everybody in here is with you. And then all of a sudden, somebody gets arrested. And then every, what is there's 50, 60 people in here, and everybody abandons you all at once. And you're like, okay, well, I guess i got to do this alone. And that's what Paul's feeling. He had all these people who were supporting him throughout his ministry and who were there with him in Asia. And all of a sudden, the trial comes, and everybody who is in the vicinity of him abandons him. And I don't mean every Christian who supported him. Luke was still with him. Uh, Onesiphorus obviously was with him. There were people who were with him, but the vast majority of people who were with him at the time, they just abandoned him. And he basically said, and he doesn't hold any animosity against them either. He says, may the Lord not hold it against them. So he was still working and actively praying for them. Uh, But this persecution that happened, Phygelus and Hermogenes were apparently the most prominent ones, but they left when the persecution occurred. And yet Onesiphorus was the one who was yielding the fruit, uh, according to the parable. And Paul actually uh, gives him a great, I think, two verses of blessing, that God would bless him. Now, chapter 2 begins with therefore, and refers to what we ended on in chapter 1, which is the example that I just gave you. And in verses 1 through 7, he gives three ways in which you must be a fruitful Christian. Now, in contrast to Phygelus and Hermogenes, but yet to follow the example of Onesiphorus. Now, the three ways to be a fruitful Christian, and you guys can listen to this later. I'm just going to read what they are, uh, the Bible study last time I gave it. The first way is to be a fruitful Christian is that there is a person that you must be. That person is strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The second thing is that there is a task you must do. You must entrust the gospel to faithful men who will also teach others. And that's not just pastors and elders, you know, transferring onto other pastors and elders. It's every Christian. Every Christian's ministry is to make disciples. So that's everything that you've been taught faithfully, all the sound doctrine that you know. That's you passing it on to others. Now, the third thing is there is a price that you must pay. And that price is you must suffer hardship. It says, for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. Now, with this third one, Paul gives three examples of hardship. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, as those who sacrifice and persevere through the hardship that they go through in their jobs and their careers and what it is they do in order to obtain a reward. They all have some sort of discipline they have to push through. Now, when we studied this last time, we determined that God uses the most the one who is willing to sacrifice the most of him or herself to him. And when you look at these three professions, the person who succeeds and gets the crown or the reward in all three of these is the one who gains the most uh, reward from it. 
Now, in regard to suffering that Paul says we need to endure, in verses 8 through 13, he gives us three examples of how present suffering leads to future glory. Now, when we suffer in the present, that's not always our first mindset. It's not always, well, I guess I'm going to endure this because in heaven I'm going to get something. And a lot of times our flesh intercedes and says, oh, this is miserable. You really need to find a way out of this. And that's not the attitude or the mindset that we're supposed to have. So he gives three examples. And the first example is the greatest example. And that is the example of Jesus. Because he says after he suffered on the cross, Jesus himself was raised to eternal glory. And when, I know you guys have all read the Gospels, but when you read the suffering of Jesus, he didn't just die on the cross that day. That wasn't the only suffering he endured. He spent 48 hours, maybe a little bit more than that, just in stress and agony where he was sweating blood. He was whipped. He had a robe put on him. It was ripped off and the wounds reopened. Just all these other things that you read, and you read what medical doctors say that he went through, that is massive suffering. Suffering to the point where we get the word excruciating from someone who is through the cross or has suffered on the cross. That's where the word comes from. Now, Jesus suffered on the cross for eternal glory. Now, Paul uses himself as the second example. He tells Timothy that he suffers so that others may come to know Christ and be with him in glory. So Paul suffers. Now, Paul's going to get eternal glory with the rewards that he gets, but he says he's not just doing it for that. He's doing it so that other Christians may become disciples and have glory, and that others who don't know Christ may also come to glory through knowing Jesus. So Paul is suffering not for himself and what he's going to gain only, but for what he can gain for others. And the third example is an early Christian hymn that's in verses 11 through 13 that the early believers sung to remind themselves of the truth that endurance will earn you eternal rewards. Now, verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2, Paul reminds Timothy to be a diligent workman who studies to show himself approved so that he may separate himself from the empty words of those who are opposed to that truth. Because if you let the lie seep in, if you let it gain a foothold, it's like that gangrene. If you don't cut the gangrene off, then it infects the whole body. And uh, you know, I've read several articles on mountaineering and climbing Everest, and I'm not going to. But a lot of those people who go up there, they lose an appendage of some sort. They may lose a toe or a finger or something, but they lose something. They have to sacrifice that in order to stay alive. And that's the same thing. If you don't cut off that lie, that gangrene that enters the church or enters, tries to pass itself off as truth, it will infect your walk, and you don't want that. And so with this, Paul gives an example of two men who have done just that to the church, and their names are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And they came in and they spread a lie in the church and it caused a lot of people to fall away. And so Paul's not afraid to mention those who are stumbling those in the church. Now with this, we go to verse 19. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, nevertheless, I'm going to bring up this word later too, but nevertheless here, despite the danger that these false teachers are but shifting sand, 
Paul says, nevertheless, despite these people, God's solid foundation is sure. You know, despite false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus, despite their departing from the truth, despite those whose faith seems to be overthrown, despite these continual attacks on the truth, Paul says, you don't have to worry about those things because we know God's solid foundation will stand firm. And God's solid foundation, uh, some commentators believe refers to the church, it very well possibly may, uh, and it also may refer to simply God's word, uh, which stands firm. But God's church will endure through these trials because his foundation has one seal with two inscriptions. Now, the first one says, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, this is a paraphrase from Numbers 16.5. Now, ironically, the last, I think, three out of the four times I was up here, this story keeps coming up. Um, and it is from Numbers 16, and it talks about when Korah came and said to Moses, you take too much on yourself, you know, we're all children of God, you need to let it go and let us take part of the responsibility. And, and Moses and Aaron drop to the ground and they say, look, God put us here, but if you'd like to test that, by all means, come the next morning and bring censors with everybody who's with you and we'll do a test and God will say, okay, who is his? And so that's where this is from. Moses says, in the morning, the Lord will show who are his. And God did. And everybody who came against Moses and Aaron was destroyed. So the Lord knew who were his. Now, the second one comes from Numbers 16. Well, the second one has two ideas of where it may come from. It's Numbers 16, 16, I'm sorry, Numbers 16, 26 to 27 says, he warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them or you'll be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives and children in the entrances of their tents. Or it comes from Isaiah 52.11, which says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out of it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. Either way... In both of those, the point is everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must depart from wickedness, must turn away from iniquity. Because if you're following the Lord, you have automatically said, I don't want any part of that anymore. So you walk away from it. Now, why is the first inscription important? So if Hymenaeus and Philetus continue their destructive ministry, the Lord knows those who are his despite what they're doing. If these profane and vain babblings or this useless talk proliferates through the church like a cancer, the Lord still knows those who are his. If the faith of some is overthrown, the Lord still knows those who are his. He says, you don't need to worry about all these rumblings, all these trials that are going through the church. God knows the people that are his. God's not stressed about the state of the church. Is he concerned about it? Does he want it to grow? Does he want it to mature? He absolutely does. But we also know from the parable of the wheat and the, ch- the tares that there's going to be false people in amongst the church that are not true Christians. So God's not worried about it. At the end of the age, he's going to ha- the angels sort everything out and everything's going to be good. So he doesn't want us to worry about it. And we may not know who belongs to God, but we can know if we belong to God. In Romans 8.16, it says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 
So then if we are God's children, we are sealed with his spirit. And there's two places in Ephesians, several places in 2 Corinthians that speak of us being sealed, sealed with the spirit of God. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the Scarlet Pimpernel, but it was during the French Revolution, and all the nobility was taken, and they were getting their heads cut off, and they were being killed, but there was a man who went by the Scarlet Pimpernel, and he was rescuing these people from the guillotine. And what he would do is, as they were on their way to the guillotine, if he was there, he would take his ring and he'd be in his disguise and he would show them like this little scarlet pimpernel under his ring and say, this is your seal that you're going to be saved. And so they would take confidence. He would do some sleight of hand trickery and pull them out and put somebody else in and they would be saved. That was their seal that they were saved. And God gives us not that seal, but he gives us the seal of the Holy Spirit. That is, we have been given that. We can be absolutely sure that we have salvation. It cannot be taken away. Now, the second inscription, why is that important? While God knows those who belong to him, God calls those who do belong to him to leave their sin behind. A characteristic of someone who belongs to God is that they will want to depart and get away from sin. They don't want to sin anymore. Uh, there, there's going to be a struggle. Paul's epistle to the Romans shows that the internal struggle a true believer should have in trying to get away from sin. And I'm, I know you guys have all read this before, but I'm going to read it because I really like it. And, <laughs> and it's God's word and it won't return void. So Romans seven fourteen to 25 says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I do, I do not, for what I, oh, see, this is why I should read it. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now Paul probably the greatest apostle struggled against sin. And I'm sure he didn't always succeed against it because he was human. And of course, if he did succeed against it perfectly, he wouldn't have needed Jesus, which he preached. Anyway, the point is, there's got to be a struggle. We're not going to be perfect with it. But those who name the name of Christ will have this strong desire to depart from iniquity. We don't want to sin anymore. Now, if someone does not have a desire 
or the actions to depart from iniquity, it is a fair question to ask if they really belong to Jesus or not, or if they have just been deceived. Like I said, the question is, is there a struggle? And everyone should pray about that because we can get ourselves too hardened to a sin. We can, be, we can put something off a long time and be hardened to something. But what we need to do is make sure we stay in God's word so that we don't because the water of the world will make sure that we stay that permeable and soft clay that can be moldable in God's hands. So the church consists of those who belong to God and have dedicated themselves to struggle for righteousness. Now, verse 20 and 21. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purpose, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Now, within that foundation of the church, there is a variety of vessels and articles that are used for certain purposes, just like you, know, you go to my house and we have a toaster oven on the counter and we have fine china that we rarely use because paper plates are easier. And we have a mixer that Mariah uses to bake and all these other things. Everything has a purpose. If it doesn't have a purpose, I really try to get rid of it because I hate extra junk in the house. But everything in God's house, every person in God's house has a purpose. Every one of you is a tool for use in the master's hands. He has a purpose for each one. He uses some for honorable things. Well, actually, you know what? All of us are used for honorable things. Those that are used for dishonor are those that are not part of the church, who are the infiltrators. Now, it says those who cleanse themselves, those who sanctify themselves who are set apart. This references back to the law again, where the utensils used in the sacrifice in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple were all sprinkled with blood. And what they would do is, you know, they would kill the perfect lamb and they would sprinkle it on the altar. They sprinkled it on the utensils for making the sacrifice. They sprinkled it on the showbread table. Everything that was in there was sprinkled with blood of some kind. Even Aaron's priestly garment had some sprinkling of blood on it. Aaron himself had blood dipped on his thumb and his big toe. Everything was used, cleansed with blood for the purpose of serving God. That's how it was cleansed. And the cleansing here, even though we're all cleansed with Christ's sacrifice so that we can be made acceptable to heaven, this isn't what's talking about. This is the cleansing that comes from sanctification or where we set ourselves apart for his work. That's why it compares to the, temp the tools of the tabernacle. This is something that God does in conjunction with us. We are to put forth effort. It is not something that God will just do. He did what he needed to do with cleansing and gave us Christ Jesus. Now he wants us to work in conjunction with him so that we can be sanctified and cleanse ourselves to be used by him. Now, remember what I said earlier is God uses the most the one who is willing to sacrifice the most of him or herself. And so the question is, how much do you want to be used? Now, if you want to be used more... What are you doing to prepare yourself for that? What spiritual disciplines do you need to hone? Is it prayer? Is it study? Is there something else in your life that you need to let go? Is God calling you somewhere and you're fighting to stay? 
I sort of was fighting to stay, but it's really hard to fight against God, so we're going. But, and this is interesting, I was listening to K-Wave on the, not K-Wave, um, K-Lev on the five-minute drive to church, and this was very applicable to what we were talking about this morning. Uh, I think the guy was talking about a book by Charles Stanley. I didn't hear who it was by. But the man said, the ultimate way to accomplish your goals is to use the word nevertheless. And that sounds silly because, you know, what word, how does that word apply in any way, shape, or form? And he said, if you want to accomplish your goals, you need to use this word. So if your goal is to get into shape and you need to be disciplined to go out and run the mile or lift the weights, you could get up in the morning and go, ah, you know what? It's really cold outside. I don't want to go. Nevertheless, to accomplish my goal, I need to get my butt out of bed and run anyway. Or your goal could be, I need to wake up early and I want to pray. And you could be, Lord, it's really nice and cozy in the bed. You've blessed me with this down comforter, this down pillow. I really don't want to get out of bed. I'm, I'm enjoying your blessings, so I really have to get out and pray. The answer is yes. So nevertheless, despite the blessings God has given me, I want to give, I want to give praise to the provider of these blessings and not simply make a God of the blessings I've been given. So nevertheless is the word that should be at the forefront now of our minds as we try to accomplish the goals God has for us. So every time we come to a fork in the road, I can either do this and be disciplined or I can either not do this and kind of be lazy. We should be like, well, nevertheless, the rocky road is going to be the right one apparently, so I need to take that because the rocky road is usually the road of discipline. With that, those who want to be used more by God. There are people who are going to be used more. There's going to be people who are used less. That does not mean those who are used less are any worse than those who are used more. Those who are used more are not better. They're simply used differently. And so it's always important that if someone is used more, they don't get a big head about it. But they are to be humble as they're humble towards each other. Now, if we want to be cleansed to be more useful to the master, what should we do? That's where we go to verses 22 and 23. It says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. So the first thing, Flee youthful lusts or flee the evil desires of youth. Now, this doesn't just refer to sexual sin. It can refer to anything from lust for money, power, or anything else like that. However, the best example that I've ever seen of this is in Scripture, and that's with Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. He was fleeing, literally, the youthful lust that he could be tempted with. Now, the key to flee is... When you're faced with one of those temptations, you don't entertain it, you don't challenge it and go, I'm stronger than that, I'm going to stand by and show you how strong I am. You don't do that. You don't try to endure it. You flee. You run. You go the opposite direction. The idea of, I will test myself on this one just to see I can stand it, has made many people fall into sin. It's never a good idea. 
It's also important to realize that you can't say yes to God and yes to sin. So if you want to be used by him, you have to flee. The second thing you need to to do is pursue. So in our quest to be cleansed for the master's use, we must not only flee sin, but pursue that which is good. Now, it's not just, well, I'm going to turn around and walk after that now. My best example for this is actually Elias. Because we've played family tag in the, in the backyard in the past. And, you know, everybody's trying to catch everybody else. But Elias has this spirit of perseverance about him. What he does is, now he, he never caught me, but of all my children that were playing at the time, he had a look of determined perseverance on his face, and he did not stop. If I, no matter how much I ran around the yard, he did not. Everybody else was like, okay, I'm done. I want to step aside. Everybody else stepped aside. But Elias kept chasing me around the yard. And it's that same pursuit of me, that tenacity, that perseverance that we're supposed to have in pursuing these things that are mentioned here that I'm going to, we've already looked at. But the first is pursuing righteousness. Righteousness is right actions that agree with God's character. And then it says faith. Faith is loyalty and reliability which both come from trust in God. And then love, which is the utter determination never to seek anything but the highest good of our fellow men. And of course, the chapter on love does a great job explaining that. But as I've explained to my children many times, you put others before yourself. And that is the ultimate example of love. If you see that someone else could benefit and you turn your head and you go, I don't care, I'd rather just do, I'd rather just have that myself, then you're not showing love. Every time, and again, I have to use my kids as an example, when they wrong someone else, they know exactly what question I'm going to ask. And that question is, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? And their answer is always like, no. And you know, they're all upset about it. But that's the question. And love is really the, the epitome of all the other fruits of the Spirit. They flow out of love. And then there's peace. The right relationship of loving fellowship with God and men. There's peace. There's no division. There's no schism. Schism. However you say it. In the body. <laughs> um, And so, you know, we seek to live at peace with each other. Are we all going to be different? We're all different. Are there going to be personalities in the body of Christ that rub us the wrong way? Of course there are. But, you know, we overlook those things because we are all the body of Christ. We all belong to Christ. We're all his. And in heaven, those things are all going to go away. All those possible divisions, they're not going to be anything. Now, it couples that at the bottom with those... Let's see. Uh, Where is it? With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Or we're supposed to pursue these things with other Christians. Those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The Christian should never seek to live a detached life. There are, I don't agree with monastic living in any way. I don't think that's what God has called any of us to. Now, there are those who, are, who have a, a more propensity to feel comfortable alone, and there's nothing wrong with that. I happen to be one of those people. 
But I know that's not what God has called me to do. He's called me to be in fellowship at this church up and through today. (laughs) And then I'm going to another church that God's going to show me. But I'm not going to leave this church and not find one. I'm going to find where God has positioned me. And God has called all of us. If he calls someone away from another church and calls them to this church, and that's where they should fellowship. But there should never be Lone Ranger Christians. We're all to work together and find strength, his strength and his joy in Christian fellowship. Now, the third thing, it says don't have anything to do or it says avoid foolish and stupid arguments that cause quarrels. This is like kids bickering over toys. Only, I'm not going to say any of my kids' names, only in this case, it's gray areas in a church. There are very specific things that the church believes that Mary was a virgin, that Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose from the dead after three days and, and, and repent the, nece- the necessity of repentance and God's grace. And there are certain things that are rock solid. There are other things that are gray areas that we can discuss in an amicable way that don't need to cause division. And this could be, you know, I have one view of eschatology and I know people in other church have another view. And that's fine. And I've talked with them and they've talked with me and I still think they're believers. They still think I'm a believer. And there are several people at the, my warehouse that I was, again, no longer at anymore, but he's of a different denomination, yet he is the most, uh, one of the most encouraging brothers I've ever been, been you know, I've ever worked with. And we don't, we don't agree on everything. We don't have to agree on everything. We just shouldn't argue about anything. Now, verses 24 to 26. And the servant of the Lord, or and the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So how does a servant of the Lord behave? So first of all, he doesn't pick fights. And this kind of goes along with avoiding foolish quarrels as well. We're not looking for arguments with other people. I, I know it's very easy even easier sometimes to argue with people outside of the church because, especially on social media, people will post one line or two lines of something and then everybody will feel the need to chime in their opinion and there's this big hundred-thread argument on something that really isn't important. And it's just picking fights. Now, the second thing the servant of the Lord does is he is kind to everyone whether they are deserving or not. Now, the Bible also calls this heaping hot coals on someone's head. Uh, Sometimes at work, we call this killing them with kindness. And there was an example when I was in the tire center. I was a manager in the tire center, and there was a lady who had come in. And I didn't talk to her at first. It was one of my employees, and she got extremely upset. And she was cursing him out, and he was just... He had said some snide off comment remark, not really thinking as it a serious thing. And so I had to come in 
and I was talking to her, and I apologized to her, and he 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 himself was like I I, I didn't he, his snide remark wasn't meant to be rude, it was meant to be funny, so he wasn't trying to be he wasn't trying to aggravate her, he was trying to be funny, he was trying to diffuse the situation and it didn't work, and so I came in and I talked to her, and you know we got her what she needed, and she calmed down and. She seemed like a person who maybe initially was maybe just, you know, kind of a jerk, just because they could be one. And I had pulled him aside a little before that while I was still taking care of her and said, look, you don't know what she's going through. You can't just say something like that. You've got to be sensitive because someone could come in and you don't know if they just lost someone earlier that day or you don't know if they have someone sick in the hospital. There's all these situations that you don't know about, so you can't really answer it like that. So we came back out, and we apologized profusely to her. We took care of her. And she left, but she came back five minutes later, and she apologized. She said, look, I'm really sorry. This is what's going on in my life right now. And sure enough, exactly what I had just told him happened. So we're kind to everyone, whether they deserve it or not. You know, sometimes, no, honestly, none of us really deserve kindness. We're all sinners. But we give it anyway. And this person really... You know, they needed a kind word. They had a hard day. And she came back and apologized. She didn't have to. Uh, But we were kind whether we think they deserve it or not. Now, the third thing is, serving the Lord is able to teach the basic truths of God's word. And those are the things that I, I mentioned some of them. We know that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ. Um, all those things that I just mentioned know them, know where they're found, you know, know where the gospel is found specifically in just a small increment in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you that which I first received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was raised and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Know those things, know where they're found, and then try to, and, and know how to explain them. Those are the basic things that we all need to know as a servant of the Lord. The fourth thing is, is we're not resentful. We're patient with those who oppose us without any ill will. Remember, I said Paul was abandoned by everybody, and he didn't wish any of them any ill will. What he told Timothy about these four people that he's mentioned is essentially God's going to deal with them, but you need to be careful with them. So he needed to be warned, but Paul always sought for others' repentance, that they would know the truth, and he didn't bear anybody ill will. So we need to be patient um, and if you ever want to see this in action, I've mentioned him before, but Frank Turk does presentations and then he does question and answers, and they're all on YouTube. And the way he handles them is all very tactful. He uh, is very, uh, he's very kind even to people who are very aggressive towards him. He's a really good example of that, of seeing that. Now, what is the hope of the servant of the Lord that behaves in such a manner? His hope is that his opponents will repent and accept God's truth so that they can be saved and escape the devil's captivity. Now, Pastor Bill's mentioned it before. There's a book called Tactics by Greg Kokel. It's a very, very good book. If you want to read it, it helps you um, discuss in a non-aggressive way the gospel with people. Um, One of his... Well, I'll talk about that later. Anyway, these characteristics are important for every servant of God because of the constant opposition we're going to face. And even more so, it seems, in the last days that we're in. Now, we need to tactfully engage them in dialogue. 
uh, with those who are hostile to Christianity. A description of the opposition that we're going to face is actually in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, which we're going to go through right this second. Now, chapter 3, verse 1 says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, terrible times here in the classical Greek is used to describe wild animals and the raging sea. But it's actually only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's when it describes the two demon-possessed men that Jesus met in Matthew chapter 8, where it calls them exceedingly fierce. Now, those are going to be the times of the last days. That's a description of them. Now, last days is a broad term in the New Testament. Uh, It can refer from the time that the church began on Pentecost all the way up to specifics in the last days, which I believe that we're probably in. But that's not really a, again, that's like a gray area. That's one of those things you don't argue about. I believe we're in the last days. I'm not going to argue with somebody about that. But verses 2 through 5 describe the condition of the last days. And I think if you read these, it looks pretty evident we're there. Now, verse 2 says, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Now, the most significant mention in these verses is the very first phrase here, and it says, lovers of themselves. And I say that because the rest of these descriptions found in these verses all stem from this one. This is a, someone who lives a self-centered life, and someone who lives a self-centered life that's not seeking God's will, but his own will is going to display these other attributes. Now, once you put yourself on the throne of your life, and you remove God, you have ceased being obedient to God. Lovers of themselves is literally in the Greek self-lovers and points to the fact that the center of gravity of the natural man is to love themselves rather than God. And I believe that is a characteristic evident in our age. And I don't think we need to be encouraged to love ourselves. I think we do a pretty good job of that. I think we naturally have that ability But I don't think we need to be taught to hate ourselves either. I think what Paul says in Romans is very telling. In Romans 12.3 it says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What we need to see ourselves as is who we really are. Are we sinners? Yes. Do we need to hate ourselves? No, because this is how we were born. We can't help it. But we need to realize that we continually need our Savior. We need to realize that while we don't need to hate ourselves, we need to see ourselves realistically. And how I see myself realistically is going to be a little bit different than maybe you see yourself. It's going to be, I may be strong in one area where you may be weak. We need to You need to figure out where it is you need to strengthen yourself in your faith. And that's going to be different for each person. But we need to look at ourselves realistically. Now, the next section says, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive. Boastful, proud, or abusive, which is blasphemers in in some translation. All these have to... 
All these attitudes have to do with this person thinking they are the most important person, which again, again gives credence to someone being a lover of themselves. Essentially, those persons or people are saying, you don't matter and God doesn't matter. All that matters is me. Now, verses 3 and 4. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous. Slander is super prevalent. It's even easier to do with social media, with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and the other ones that are out there that I'm not aware of. Just looking at what people post, and especially when it comes to politics, but everybody is lying about somebody else, and it is so prevalent nowadays. Now, they are all, sorry, they are also without self-control. They are brutal. They are not lovers of good. They are treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And again, these are all things that are centered in self. There's a verse in 1 Timothy. It talks about the widow who's seeking to uh, get married away from God's will. And, you know, I'll turn there because now I can't quote it because you're staring at me. That's not why. <laughs> uh, let's see. It says in verse 6 of chapter 5, she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And it describes these people as lovers of pleasure. And if you or these people are lovers of pleasure, they're dead. You know, it looks like they're having a great time, but they're empty inside. They're dead while they are alive. Verse 5 says they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And I'm not going over all these specifically because I'm pretty sure you guys know what they all are. And all you have to do is read the news, whether it's a newspaper or the news on the Internet or wherever you're getting the news, and you can see that these are prevalent. Verse 5 is having a form of godliness, but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. Now, when you look at all this, and we live in the world today, and it says have nothing to do with such people, that is a hard command because those people are all around you. Those people could even be around you in the church. It's hard to get away from that. But having nothing to do with such people doesn't mean you are avoiding people or you're leaving the world or living a monastic life, which I just said I don't agree with. It has to do with their actions and not taking part in their actions with them. All these are common today. In fact, if you look at all, a lot of the cultural heroes that are there today, a lot of them display all these attributes. The simple responsibility of Christians is to turn away from these attitudes, but also from the people. So turn away from the attitudes. And it has to do also with the company that you keep. Now I... Let's see, how do I say this? My last day of work was Thursday before I go to Kansas. And so they had a mini party for me in the office and then I was invited out to lunch with two people at work. Now they're not Christians. I did go with them to lunch, and you know we talked about general things. Uh, both of them are aware I'm a Christian. I've explained the gospel to the both of them before, so they're aware where I stand. But I also know they're not going to bring up certain subjects because 
they know I don't agree with them. And so you have to be careful about who you hang out with, but also how you hang out with them. And again, these two people, I'm not afraid to bring up the gospel with them. I've talked about the Bible. I've talked about morals. I've explained certain aspects of the Bible that they were like, oh, I always wonder what that meant. And they're like, oh, that's good. So you have to be careful on the influence that they have. Now, that's all actually I'm going to say about that. Just be cautious. Make sure that you are the thermostat setting the temperature for the conversations that you have with people and that you don't go along with it like a thermometer. Now, verses 6 through 7. This is kind of like the strategy of these corrupt people in the last days. They're like sneaky snakes. A couple of years ago on Father's Day, we, it was very hot. The doors were open, the back and the front, and there's a gap in our front door about, I don't know, probably three or four inches. And we're sitting there, and a snake comes in the house. It's not a small snake either. It's a six-foot rattlesnake. I thought it was very exciting. I was the only one. But, in fact, I thought it was the best Father's Day ever, honestly. But what (laughs) what these false teachers will do is they will look for an avenue of entrance, and they will look for the easiest possible way in. And they do that by looking for people who are gullible. Now, someone who is gullible will believe or pay attention to most anything if it is packaged the right way. Now, some people will get upset with people for being too skeptical. Being a skeptic is not a bad thing, as long as you're willing to accept a reasonable answer. It's It's good if you're skeptical when someone says something and you go, what do you mean by that? In fact, that's that's a question you should ask a lot of people when they they are opposed to Christianity and they, they... say these slogans, and you have to say, well, what do you mean by that, and have them explain. But, and it says gullible, um, I'm sorry, I didn't even read the verse. Let me read the verse. Verse 6, there are, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. So they worm their way or they sneak their way into homes. Now, it says gullible women, Paul singled out women most likely because in that day women spent far more time at home than the men. Men are just as possible to be uh, gullible. Although uh, in this day and age, or in Paul's day and age, it was, it was the women because of where they stayed. Now it says swayed by all kinds of evil desires or led away by various lusts. The spirit of the last days finds its appeal by exciting various lusts or by exciting the evil desires within us. And it's that that can lead us astray. And that's the things we have to be concerned about. And when you, and here's an, as an example, I'll list Joel Osteen again, because he says, you know, the faith movement and God wants you to be rich. And in the deep part of all of us, it's like, ah, oh, no money. That would make things a whole lot easier. And that can excite people. But it's that kind of thing where you have to be careful and listen to what he says because he'll say a lot of truth, but he says a lot of lie mixed in with it. So does Creflo Dollar and a lot of other people. So it's those kind of, those kind of people who give money to them. They're the gullible people that are being referred to. Not the only ones, but some of them. Verse 7 says, They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. The spirit of the last days has this problem with truth. And... 
in today's society, there's a lot of slogans about truth. There's the slogan that says, there is no truth. Or the one that says, it's true for you and not for me. Or all truth is relative. Or you can't know truth. And even there are no absolutes. The problem with all these slogans that people give us is that they're all self-defeating. So when someone tells you there is no truth, you ask them, is that true? And when someone tells you all truth is relative, you ask them, is that a relative truth? Or when they say you can't know truth, you say, well, how do you know that then? Or when someone says there's no absolutes, you say, are you absolutely sure? All these, all these statements are self-defeating. And it's because people don't want to know the one truth that there is, and that's the truth of God. And the, the example of this sort of corrupt human condition is listed here as Janus and Jambres. In verse 8 and 9, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So they're able to work real miracles, Janus and Jambres, and that's not simply sleight-of-hand miracles. They were able, by the power of darkness, to work real miracles. And yet, eventually, they couldn't match God miracle for miracle, and their occult powers were shown to be inferior to God's power. Now, these false teachers that are going to be in this last day and age described as uh, examples of Janus and Jambres here, they're going to be shown to be false. It may be after we're gone in the rapture, but they're going to be shown to be false. Now, in summary of what we've just gone through, I want to begin with reminding us all that we are the Lord's and that we need to make sure we're departing from sin. And we depart from sin so that in that great house that we're in, we can be more used by the master for the purpose with which he's created us. And as a servant of the Lord, the qualities that are shown there, when we prepare ourselves and we have those qualities, God is going to use us to draw people out of that trap that they're in because they're taken in a snare. They're taken in a trap by the devil. And this same qualities of the servant of the Lord help us to discern these end times, to help us discern where the truth really lies, which is in God's word, and to show other people that those things are not the truth. We can help hopefully educate the gullible people out of where, they're, where they are. So in order to accomplish this as a whole, though, we need to work on our spiritual disciplines. And I include myself in this every single day because I, I also stumble in this. Now, the word that I want you to keep in mind, I said before, and that's nevertheless. Every time the Spirit tells you we should do this, and you go, I know, Lord, but this is so comfortable, or it's really cold outside, or whatever excuse our flesh may come up with, we need to be able to say, nevertheless, Lord, I'm going to do this because I want to be prepared to be used by you. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for all the encouragement it brings. I thank you for the warning it brings 
so that we may not be caught up in some of the things that are around. Help us to ever be diligent in your word so that we may not be deceived. And Lord, help us to be a servant of the Lord. Help us to have all those qualities, never to be divisive, never to be argumentative, but always loving and caring and concerned for those people who are outside as well as within the church. We thank you for this time in your word and pray that you'd bless it and pray that you bless everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.